Yo, 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 what's good? This is another episode of Sync Gems. I'm your boy, Roy Matz, and on this episode, we have Phil Lober. Aside from his insane success in the trailer space and in the sync space, Phil has started working in this industry when he was 16 years old, and we get into it in more detail. But I really wanted to deconstruct how Phil goes about artistry and sync because he's been putting out music solo by himself as he's been creating this amazing success. And to me, that's actually how you create a brand for yourself, right? You can have a label pushing your music, but you also have your own route, which creates leverage and the ability to work with more people on more prestigious things. Then the interview took a really dope direction into mental health, into routines, into community, into how intrinsic and extrinsic motivations feed each other and how the ego plays and wants to keep us in a stagnant place where we need to explore. We are artists. We want to expand and be on the A-game. Anyway, I'm going to leave you to it because this is an amazing, amazing interview and there are things that I'm going to listen to 20 times while editing this. So I hope you're going to get out of this what I've gotten out of this. And if you get that value out of this podcast, please make sure to rate and review it on Apple Podcast. Follow it on Spotify. This really helps the show grow and get into more ears. So that way I can bring more dope guests to talk about their journeys. If you leave a review and leave your hashtag or send me a message, I will personally send you some dope samples I've made. And without further ado, my man, Phil Lober. Phil Lober. Philip. Phil Lober. In the house. What is good? What's good, my man? I, um, I've been doing actually a lot of projects, various projects. And yeah, let's get, let's get down into Let's get down to business. Let's get down to business. I mean, tell me a little bit about about yourself, like about being Phil Lober from starting music from from the earlier days to Phil Lober, who is getting constant placements and is having is seeing success in this music slash sync world slash artist world. I want to talk all about everything, but I want to know who you are and what brought you to this place. Sure, man. Well, what I started with with music was actually a, so I think it really began when I started to take piano lessons when I was about six years old, right? So I was obsessed with this one. I remember it was Game & Watch 3 for the Game Boy Color had this menu music in it and I would always go into my room and listen to that music and just have that re- looping and looping and looping. It was like this, I was like a drug. I would just listen to that all the time. And um, eventually I think Halo 3 came out. And I mean, that's one of the best soundtracks. I was 13 at the time. And I would just, again, listen and listen. I ran the CD out actually. The CD is totally burnt out now, both of them. And that's probably the score that truly sparked my start into the composing now that I think about it. And I got started with these online games in the Bionicle franchise, if you know what that is. The Lego um the Lego franchise with these biomechanical beings that were all tribal. It was a really interesting contrast. Uh, so these, these sort of tribal people and they're waiting for these things called Toa, six Toa that are sort of their saviors. Uh, they represent each element, earth, water, wind, um, stone, ice, something else. Um, <laughs> but I got started on these fan games, right? These fan games were made by, you know, 10 to 14, you know, that's the age range. And, you know, me being 13, I was just in that same age range. Love this, 
love this Bionicle shit. Really, I had, it, I had almost every Bionicle. It was the one thing that I got was that Bionicle. It was great. Um, so I began to write for these fan games. There was like this Bionicle Smash Brothers parody, right? And so it was hilarious. I would basically write a string patch, take a string staccato patch and just play on it, just improvise some dramatic sounding thing for about three minutes. And then I would raise the tempo up so it would sound epic and fast. And then I would send that in and it, it wasn't shit <laughs> for some reason. Um, I mean, now looking back on it, it's total shit. But at the time, it was like, okay, people were enjoying this stuff. Um, I won this this little, we had like this sort of award thingy and I, I won a little thing. But I really think it's because I was the only composer on that forum at the time doing it. So from that moment, I started getting myself into um, other types of music, more just pure kind of filmic sound of music, sort of the epic film genre. I began listening to uh, more of the typical, what you might say is uh, an A-list composer, such as Hans Zimmer or Thomas Newman, um, more of Martin O'Donnell, Michael Salvatore, amazing people, man. And then from there, I got my first job working on this short film called How Could She, directed by Kieran Newton. Um, that, would, that was pretty well received, but it, it didn't really... You know, it was like a student film at the time. And then about, a, I think in the same year, I got offered this gig with a documentary. Yeah, it was that same year. So I, I sent in a demo to this documentary team and I was 16 at the time. So they really didn't understand. They weren't trusting really. Um, but once they heard the demo, they became instantly trusting and they, they really wanted to work with me. And so I was pleased about that. And we we spent about two years of my life working on that because I was so occupied with that. Um, and I, I was graduating from high school early because of the, uh, of an exit exam that now doesn't exist. Uh, went to a university, an art university when I was 17, but I ended up getting so caught up with movies, especially this documentary that I ended up just quitting the university. Um, and I found the classes to be rather easy as well. And I, I tried to get harder classes, but they wouldn't let me. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so that's pretty much been the journey as far as my like pre-adult years go. And then after that, um, after I did that documentary, it was finished. I was about 18. I won an award for best original score at the X Dance Film Festival. Uh, an award I actually don't mention very much, but you know, for the sake of the knowledge, I will. Um, and and then afterwards, uh, some friends of mine were getting into this thing called trailer music, and I was wondering, okay, how, how can I get involved into something like this? And I was lucky enough to be directed to um, Agus, who's the owner of Really Slow Motion. And, you know, I sent him some demos and he said at the equivalent to, oh, this is crap. And I would keep on sending stuff and he'd say, okay, this is crap for this reason, right? That's really the gold with, with uh, feedback. And, and eventually for about a year, I kept on submitting stuff and it was less and less and less uh, off par, right? So it was, it was getting closer to that, um, that quality standard. And finally, I got two tracks of mine accepted into an industry album from Melissa Motion. And then another, um, another bunch of months pass, and I finally get my first placement into um, a commercial for the Avengers. And yeah, so it's been a lot of those placements with Melissa Motion. And then afterwards, I meet Ghostwriter, and we get talking about developing an album. And um, this album became Black Space, which uh, yeah, has placed a lot over the last years. And I've been continuing to do albums with them and continuing to do albums with a number of different publishers. And that's led to, led to a, lot of, a lot of fun, a lot of, a lot of crazy nights of customs, a lot of really collaborative adventures, I would say. Um, but overall, you know, it's just led to me learning about this entire process. The whole thing's been a journey. I'm still learning. Um, so 
Yes, I think that's the best I can summarize it. Hmm. So, from there, you are at, at 16, you're already scoring, which is amazing to me, you know, because most people who listen to this are not scoring since they're 16. And most people in general don't score since they're 16. So, that's, you got a pretty early start with cinematic in that, um, in that uh, journey, which, again, not a lot of people that I know do it at such a, an early age. You know, there's the phases, there's the rock phase, there's the uh, Linkin Park phase, there's the all these phases. And you gravitated to this, this different world, this different realm, this thinking differently realm. I want to know when did your artist thing start coming about? Yeah. Well, man, this is such a cool thing because I've always made, basically when I made the album Clockwater, my first actual album release, that was all epic orchestral stuff. It was in that genre. And some tracks on the album I would sing on and some I would hire other singers for. So there was two tracks. One um, was called Wishmaker with, with Kendall Blake Mata, I think was her name. And she sung on that. So that was my first actual song song I'd released. And then I had my own song that I sang on. And that was sort of this strange opening of a door for me. And then after that, I began to, I began to listen to a lot of different music, right? I was always driving in my car in LA just because, you know, when you're young, you have all this time to so just, driving around LA and um, I would switch between two stations. There was the classical station and the eighties rap station. And those are my two favorite genres to listen to in the car. And, it, and it's funny because people say there's such contrast in genres. Well, no, not really. There's, 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 you still get that same kind of diving into the music itself. It depends on if you're listening to good rap or bad rap or good classical, or yes, there's bad classical. So um, at least objectively, so yeah, so I kind of listening to these different genres of music allowed me to then bring in that into my epic writing. And I remember one night I was procrastinating on some chores and I decided to write a track um, called Alive. And it, the track itself took about two hours to write, but it took about seven hours um, to mix accumulatively over, over the course of maybe a couple of days. Um, and, you know, I had a friend, uh, Joshua Crispin, who processed the vocals and really helps get the vocals specifically to sound amazing within the mix of the track. So, um, so there was some belief in the track already from his part. And so, you know, I felt that, okay, maybe there's something going on with this track. And we had it upload and it, it's still my most popular track. I've never been able to out-popularize that track. Um, so then from there on, I released an album with Alive in it and a bunch of other stuff, a bunch of other songs that I had created over this really magical period of time when I was just doing nothing but writing, writing from inspiration. Um, and that led to the album uh, If. And a similar process continued with the next album that came out called Voyant. And... Yeah, just that's that's pretty much that's pretty much the the summary of of my solo career, I would say, because um, afterwards I did have a three year long process accumulatively of writing this next album called Pressures, and this this album is the first that I've ever performed live. We did a live performance in Mexico, um, somewhere in Tijuana. I wish I would remember the the venue's name, but it was quite an interesting place. So we did Guts, which was a track from that album. And that's the latest live, or I guess the latest outputted media that I've produced as far as the, my solo artist stuff. Got you. I've, I've listened to, uh, to the last album that you've put out as I was driving here in Bali. Oh, no way, man. I swear to God. 
talk about like yeah. research. You know, people ask me if I do research before podcasts. And if you got music out there and you're coming on my podcast, I'm listening to this shit. And actually, it was before we, we got talking um, because friends have told me about you. And I've just crank it, cranked it on, crunk it on, went for a bike ride for like an hour, and it was just magical. So I, I recommend doing that if you got a bike. And also, it's so interesting to me the way that sync can live with artistry in a way and how the, the genres can inspire each other. Because again, when you make something like trailer music, trailer is so specific, but yet so versatile, right? Like you have to have inspirations from heavy metal to jazz, in my opinion, like nuances, right? Like there's, it's, it has such a wide range, but what it feels like is you've taken it and you're also very, LA about how you do things. You do record other people. You do get into sessions. You do all these things. I want to ask you about this mindset of, of delegating and your writing process. How does that look like today? How did that look back, back when you started trailers, the artistry with the sync? How does that work for you? Right. So we can ask the question, why is Oh, the artistry with sync. So, so with sync, or you mean like, like with just collecting itself, or just a what? What I what I'm um what I mean is with sync is that you are, you know, people in sync are usually behind the scenes, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Like composers are mostly behind the scenes, but there yeah. are a select few. So the the finding the artistry or the uniqueness or individuality within a within um. An industry that that is rather hidden is what you're asking, and ex and, and expressing it right because the 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 need that most people have is to not show their face, but you're like, hey, here I am, you know, and I want to know how that looks like for you in your in your head in your mind. And for me, I don't even know if I am showing my face more than others, but it's, people do say that I do, and I. I think it just feels very natural. I, maybe I'm more of an extrovert. So I'm not too sure. I just, I very much see potential, um, not only in my music, but in the direction that I take in any pathway in life. But it's, it's actually more beyond identity. It's just that I have a lot of fun with it. You know, it's just like if you, like I go out and uh, I don't have my motorcycle anymore, but when I did, I would go out and ride the motorcycle and it was just fun. It was fun to, go out into the world on the motorcycle. Um, and as simple as that, I think, I think it's just, I think it's just who I am. Yeah. I, I don't know how, how much deeper to get into it. Uh, cause I never really analyzed that before. It's an interesting question, but yeah, I, I think that I'm just, just who I am. Yeah. Yeah. But okay. So uh, you know what, let me, let me elaborate because my, my questions get vague sometimes the ones that are not very specific. So let me just specify the, <laughs> The reason I'm asking for this is that there are sync people who are doing music for sync that want their music on Spotify. You know what I mean? But a lot of the times music with libraries is very exclusive and it's not out there. So how do you go with both worlds? So how do you go about making uh, music for trailers? Okay, for Ghostwriter and then music for Phil Lober. How does that live together? I think just like that. I think I I do make music for trailers for different publishers, and then I also make music for myself. So I have time where I'm making music for these publishers, and then I have time dedicated to making music just for fun. And these things support each other. The the music that I make for trailers helps me skyrocket my production skills, and the music that I make for myself helps me have this outlet that gets rid of the artist ego when going into the industry. A lot of, a lot of artists, or I should make quote unquote, right? Because it's a very overlap between artist and producer. But if they get their stuff rejected, a lot of the times they might feel bad about it or want to fight the publisher, which is a big no-no. Um, this artist avenue allows me to 
push just it's like an outlet it just allows me to get that sort of thing out of my system um and beyond the logical premise of that it's really just again it's, it's very fun like i see the fun in making music that is is more part of this other bigger radio if you if you might call it that world or it's a lot more music happening a lot more genres and it's a whole world so i figure why not explore that you know it's kind of like if you're put out into hyrule and zelda it's like how do you not explore that how do you just go into one cave and and do just that but some people do that really well some people just get themselves into one specific zone in trailers and they're perfect at it and they don't need to have this outlet um and so i guess it's just yeah, I guess the answer to your question is that I just take the time to do it really at the end of the day. Like I'm, I'm taking, you know, the five hours it takes to pump out, um, a catalog track and then mix it. And then I also have taken the five hours of another day to write some solo music. Beautiful. So you block time for each. Yeah. Yeah. I try to make a schedule and schedule out my creativity, which is really not really easier said than done. Right, like scheduling that out but a lot of the times um i feel the same source of inspiration for each genre like it's all coming from the same channel right like and i think that's important to express too because trailer music is the same channel as my artist music it's just that trailer music is caged by certain parameters that make it more marketable and because of that i guess that allows the trailer music i make to to foster a certain unique element uh, that may make it sound quote unquote unique. And I think that, um, I think again, they do interplay with each other. Something that I, I've heard here on the podcast and I, I keep hearing is that the sync industry is very saturated right now. Yeah. Where, where do you feel it is right now versus to where it was? I, well, here's the thing. I took a, a rather long hiatus when I went to Mexico you know, for a couple of years. And that put me at a distance with the industry for a, a little bit of time. And because of that, um, it's hard for me to compare the now and then but for me it feels quite the same i would say it feels like okay we're still hustling to get as many customs out hustling to get as many tracks out into a catalog and then beyond that that's um it's just a big wooden game so it's always been quite a hustle it's always been a lot of hard work um yeah it's something that's I think people will say something like things are getting more saturated. There's more people um, competing, quote unquote. But to be honest with you, um, if any effects that I feel of a difference of the industry, they're going to be uh, more from that hiatus more than any change I can notice in the industry. That's the best way I can answer that. Got you. What is a mistake that you've done coming up? that you see other people doing as well and you want to tell them to stop doing you can't be emotional that's the number one thing that's actually that's a mistake i've made right like i think the worst mistake that i ever made was um talking about the health effects that i had uh from this sort of eye surgery that i had three years ago um i totally went into some kind of depression or some kind of spiral down and um you know i made a post about it on facebook and i never i never saw a gig for like five months after that you know it was just ridiculous how um people are very weary you know people are very weary so i would say you do not want to get too emotional unless it is about the process itself you know if you're like Damn, I'm excited about getting these strings to sound more real, or I'm excited to have this new product, or I'm excited to go sample something and make a product out of it, or I'm excited to just collaborate with other people or get these tracks to the publisher, right? That's a different kind of emotion. That's that's forward motored 
motivation. But when you go into a space of being worrisome, you know, anxiety, things like that, people tend to avoid you. And I don't blame them. It's, it's actually quite complicated. Um, but it's not that they don't care. They, they, they care about you. It's not that they don't care about you. But on a professional level, they won't want to be with you. And it's very similar. It sounds funny, but it's very similar to dating, right? If you're out with a girl, uh, she she might, and you're acting you know, very anxious and you're acting very worrisome, she may want to still be friends with you. She may still you know, care about you as a human being, but she's not going to want to invest her time into forming something as committing as a relationship with you. Right? And it's the exact same thing with professionality. Now, later, if you're, if you're really close with somebody, you can obviously open up to them about things. But that's different. That's opening up. That's a dialogue. That's not um, an emotional uh, spiral, I guess, the best way I can put it. It's not an outburst, really. It's more just a, like, um, like a non-calmness, right? Like you basically just want to be either passionate about something in a positive direction or calm. You know, those are those are the two directions that have helped me the most, at least. And if I stray away from the, that energy, then things go unsuccessful. You know, things can uh, go down. So, yeah, I think that's what that's my answer. It's just not to not to get too cranky about stuff, not to get too emotional about things. And I mean, sometimes life kicks you in the ass, and that's what happened. Mm. Wow. Till this this podcast, I've I haven't seen on the podcast again people speak about their well being like mm-hmm. like you have right now. So no. basically, yeah, basically you, you're talking about something that is a Pandora box that yeah. I've I've dove in deep into, which is basically well being and spirituality and understanding one's limits right the the label the label that you are sending to is not getting emotional about you so if you are getting emotional about what a uh, label has to say about you it means that you need to shift your gears emotionally to understand deeply what's triggering this behavior to to be able to work with the people you want to work with. And the dating analogy, I actually love it because it's true. Um, I'm going to tell you, I was super needy in the beginning. Like I was just like submitting and so hungry and stuff like that. But I was forgetting about who I actually wanted to work with. And then, and then taking that step back to myself, I went surfing every day. I moved into, I moved to Bali where the, the cost of living is less and I'm just as, as productive. And I did all these things with myself that helped me balance and recalibrate. And you know, like a, uh, uh, it can be a year, it can be a few months later, you know, it started, I started getting emails back, you know, and working with people who resonate with me. Resonance is a huge thing in music. So, uh, that leads me to the next question. How do you choose who to work with? Well, I love that point about resonance. Um, how do I choose who to work with? I choose... That's, a, that's an interesting question, actually. I choose people who are project intrinsic focus. So I don't choose people who are after something. Right. And if they are after something, I mean, obviously they're after some extrinsics, of course. They're after money and they're after uh, the growth of their career. That's fine. But there has to be that intrinsic value too. Imagine you're working with somebody who, um, you know, just gets pissy at you for anything. Right. And there's people like that. There's, there's people who think they need to be like that. And they've lost all intrinsicality of the music. Right. It's no longer the the serotonin giving thing it is now it's all about the extrinsic things the money the fame the the drugs you're gonna buy with said money all this stuff uh the status especially the power right comparing to your neighbor um so those kinds of people they certainly have the extrinsics there but 
they're not enjoying the process. And since they're working with you, you won't enjoy the process. I promise you, you won't. Because working with those kinds of people is like hell on earth. Um, and the reason that you would do that and work for that person is extrinsics as well. You will want to say, oh, well, I'm just going to work with this guy so I can not work with him anymore, essentially, right? Like, what kind of pathway is that? I'm going to be an assistant for the purpose of not being an assistant. It's a very interesting pathway, and I understand that there's uh, preservation in that. So I respect people who do put themselves in these positions to learn, and that's the intrinsic part of assistantship. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of diving into this assistantship example. Please, really please, please go. Yeah, it applies to everything, actually. Um, there has to be something intrinsic with what you're doing. So if you're if you are being an assistant, it's to learn as well as the extrinsics of excelling your career and then getting out of that office because that's really the goal of every assistant. Um, but then also if you're even if you're a boss, right? Even if you're hiring people for a project, the goal should also be intrinsic. There should be that intrinsic process of learning again, learning how to manage people, how collaborative efforts work together. Um, and then the extrinsic, of course, of, hey, we want to make uh, money. We want to create success for our business. Like that. So there should be a balance of this intrinsic, extrinsic. Okay. I hope I answered that okay. I need to take that in. I know people who listen to this need to take this in. I take it and, and, and rewind that. Rewind that. If you're... I'll, I'm going to listen to this like 15 times because this is so important and this is so easy. I see people um, who make 200, 300 tracks a year and you know these people and I know these people. Sometimes it feels intrinsic. Sometimes it feels completely extrinsic and extrinsic don't last. It doesn't leave a legacy to me. That's the way I see things. Y'all can see it differently. But yes, I mean, if you are if you are doing it for a financial reason, but it's providing you with an internal release, go ahead and do it. Yes, this is you are keep you are you are keeping yourself in check. You are balancing your life. You are doing a lot of things. But if you are doing it for the sake of doing it, ooh, ooh, we it's like it's like it's like rich people. Um, at 50, retiring and realizing that they've lived th a miserable 30 years. So I can resonate so highly with what you said, and I'm going to rewind this. So I don't know um, if you're listening to this, rewind that shit. People who work completely extrinsically have less chances of actually succeeding because we're, we're all habitual people. It's all based on habit, right? So if you're going and composing every day if you're intrinsic in that process that's going to motor you you know that's a that's a shot of serotonin shot of dopamine something it's going to be motoring you to then continue this process like you wonder like how does that guy sit at a desk for 20 hours straight and write music it's because of intrinsic motivation that that is the only motivation that can last that long that carries you through that process to the extrinsic of being able to then make money. Um, if you're working purely off of extrinsic, the motivation won't be there. And because extrinsic motivation can also be intrinsic anyway, that's the, that's the other complicated matter of this, right? Like someone can be so motivated uh, by the extrinsic that it becomes intrinsic and that, that gets a little complex. But just to simplify things, like I would never, like on my, on my production for Black Space with Ghostwriter, I would be perseverant, right? I would, I would say, okay, I'm just going to sit down, not think, and write. Okay, so that's the extrinsic part. But then once I started writing, it actually came became like this sort of drugged experience of like, wow, this is amazing. Like, I'm really liking this feeling of do doing it. Um, so I think that, yeah, again, there just needs to be that balance again, the intrinsic, extrinsic. I guess I keep coming back to that point. Yeah. So. You know what? Something that comes up is you've had you've had a level of success, and I'm I, I like this. I like asking this uh, to people who who have had the that this this even remotely close to success that you've had, and I want to ask what does 
what does success look to you from an extrinsic uh, standpoint? Like, let's say you get a, a really big placement. Um, what, how does that look for you? And what does success look for you on this high operating level? For me, success, and if you really practically look at it and think about it, is actually whatever continues the intrinsic. Because, for instance, um, like for me, okay, I'll just answer. Like I define success as you are making enough money with your with your composing that you're then able to afford you composing, right? That seems to be the dream of a lot of people. So it is like a circular logic. In a good way, actually, because again, people don't get into this industry for the money. And I mean, they do for the money. That's what they say, really. But come on, like, let's analyze this. People get into the industry because they already like sitting at a computer for fucking hours and just making music, right? Like the entire cornerstone of productivity is that intrinsicness. So, yeah, I think that the, the majority of people would say that success including me, that success is defined by the ability to continue doing what you love, right? And, and maximize doing what you love, right? So, and this goes for all aspects, right? So like um, a mother, a really good mother, for instance, would define success, continuing to be able to um, be with her family, right? It's just, it's a continuation of the things that they love. Um, and having, and of course, having fostered um, and parented correctly, and raising people that they can then comfortably be with in the future and spend family time with in the future as well. So yeah, it, it all comes back to doing what you love. And I think that even the, something is banking, right? Something like banking, that's something that you can apply the same logic to. So there really isn't, there really isn't a barrier to this logic. It's like people want to continue doing what they love. Um, even if you want to just go retire in a beach house, right? You've made like a hundred million dollars and you want to go retire in a beach house. You still intrinsically love that beach house, right? There's, there's you're not just like there unless, unless there's something really going strange going like you yourself, like you're riding bikes around, you're exploring the Island, right? There's things that you actually want to do in Bali. You're not just like sitting in a chair for months on end doing nothing, like literally nothing, right? Nobody does that. So there's always some kind of like going towards passion, going towards love, going towards something. And I think that's what actual success is. And then to get to that, there needs to be that intrinsic factor of money, you know, capital income, um, connections, um, marketing, you know, so having your, your namesake, but it all leads to love, man. It all leads back to passion and continuing to do what you do. There's, there's this obsession that humans always have that like they, they see the end of some 80s movie with a freeze frame and the character going, ah, like that's like the ultimate pinnacle of human experience. Well, you know, it's not because guess what? Life is really circular. Life goes on and on and on and on. Like there's no, there's no end point where you're going to have some kind of orgasmic explosion of happiness. Like, that's euphoria and we get that in the moment depending on our perspective and that's something that i had to learn over the course of of many many years of trying to go for some kind of like okay if i just do this then i'll be happy if i just get this then i'll be happy but it's not like that it's it's a perspective change you can be happy in a tent being homeless you can also be happy um with millions of dollars you know it's just that that health it plays into this and that's that's where things become multifaceted right so you don't want to be homeless right because then it affects your health which then affects your happiness so now i'm, now I'm thinking about health so yeah health and is and, also and and you can't get this the the black friday uh deals so if you're homeless oh, yeah. so yeah yeah so maybe you know a guy who knows me there's a guy down the street that gets you free shit i don't know um but uh yeah man so it's Success is a fun word. I think that really, if you, if you want to go with the traditional boring um, definition of success, then even a scam company would be successful, right? If they, if they, if they scam people, 
right? Like they would achieve their goal. They would be successful in that. But if you're talking about true life success, um, I think it's to be able to continue to express your passion and to absorb that passion. And that doesn't, you don't need to be feeling that all the time. It doesn't need to be constant euphoria. It's just the knowledge that you're doing what you love to do. Let that sink in. Take a deep breath. And uh, <laughs> we are moving into a guided meditation now. <laughs> um, <laughs> hell yeah. Hell yeah. Um, that's why I said, I, I, I told you before this, I have a feeling this is going to go to a really cool direction. And it is. <sighs> I am feeling great. And something I want you to touch on is, okay, now we've, we've, um, we've told people what success looks to Phil Lober. What does Phil's routine look like? Do you have non-negotiables in your day? Um, do you, do you um, what does your day look like? You know, routines are something that are, interesting like they can there's some months you can go where you're just there's no routine and you're like what the hell is wrong with me why am i not able to just put down something on a schedule but then you have other weeks that you're able to follow it completely fine and develop your own routine i mean if you want a direct answer my my routine just consists of you know getting out of bed making the bed doing something that's productive at the very minimum because that's where self-esteem really comes from it has nothing to do with a feeling or confidence. It's just a knowing that you can do things. So you build up that snowball by doing some minimal stuff. Uh, you know, you take a shower. Um, showers are so great. There's something about them that just, it's weird. I don't know if you feel this as well, being next to the ocean, but for me, it just absolutely revives something very internal within me. Um, and I feel absolutely better after a shower. So I'll take a shower. And then I'll just have a big fucking glass of water. Like that always helps. Um, but lately I've been getting myself addicted to decaf. <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, I just love decaf. I'm sure I might be the only guy who likes it. But, um, but so yeah, so after that, I will check the schedule. And my schedule consists of things that I just put dedicated time to. There's no hours unless it has something to do with someone else. Like this interview, we're having at five, schedule that. But when it comes down to, all right, let me work on this project. I'll write that down. How much time? 30 minutes. Okay. And then an hour cleaning. And then 30 minutes on uh, just taking a walk. All right. So just putting that. And then you have those three VIP things the day. And then once you do those things, you can then tackle the other non-VIP things that you put on. And if you don't tackle those things, then you just move it to the next day. Yeah, simple as that. So it's a system that all kind of works itself out. Um, scheduling by the week, way better than scheduling by the day. I, I would actually recommend you never, never schedule by the day. That is a nightmare. Um, you just do, you don't know what's going to happen. You know what's going to happen maybe tomorrow, but not the next day. And if something goes wrong, then where are you going to move that to? So if you schedule by the week, then you're able to, you know, okay, I can move this to Sunday because this is happening on Saturday. Um, it's a lot easier to work with that. And some people are able to even schedule by the month. <laughs> I'm getting myself to to that point, but um, yeah. So just having a again having a plan that's not so long term, but also not so short term, um, and again to just directly answer the routine question, um, having some kind of minimal habit that builds up a snowball of self esteem. Right. So you get up, you make your bed, um, you do something, you organize a little bit of space that builds up into a snowball. Then you might be calling people. Then you might say, oh, man, I'm feeling good. I'm going to work on a track. So you start writing. Um, and then, you know, whatever your imagination leads you to. And again, all these things you can, you can schedule. So and if you're feeling really overwhelmed, what you can do is this really cool thing called a mind dump, where you essentially have a piece of paper and you just write whatever's on your mind, including writing the paper. You could be like, oh, man, I'm total shit. I'm awesome. I'm great. This paper's cool. Oh, what a cool bird I just imagined. Bluebird. And then he starts thinking of like stuff. Oh, I have to get this thing done by Friday. I have to know that. And then, then you take what's relevant in that giant heap of a mess and then you organize it and you put it into your schedule. So 
that's a that's a fantastic method i think that's that's helped me develop at least a schedule but also routine too because some things that are in our subconscious leak out with that mind dump and we're able to then put a schedule like like oh man i should really go for a run and i should start running more put that in the schedule you know um as far as routines go minimal minimums are very important so if you set yourself a minimum for like five minutes of something, you will do it more than five minutes. I 100% guarantee you will do it. Like if you say, oh, I'm just going to write this track for about five minutes, you will get yourself into some kind of mode of inspiration and you'll write more than five minutes. Or if you're not inspired, you will still write more than five minutes because you're trying to finish some kind of goal that you started five minutes ago. Um, so yeah, just my answer. Yeah. I see a lot of... Um... Uh, there's a book called um, Atomic Habits by James Clear. And it speaks to exactly what you're speaking, like creating this momentum in your day in order to create this person who you want to become. And for me, when I was in New York, let's say I was, I didn't know how to face the cold. I lived in Israel my whole life. So I, I started enter, entering into the world of cold showers. And that was my win in the morning. That was my win in the morning. I, I did a bit of uh, Wim Hof breathing, got into the shower for a minute, sometimes seconds, sometimes minutes, depended on the day. But that was the first win. So that's a huge thing. I agree on so many levels with so many things. I can expand on this for hours. But I want to, to let you go in a bit because we've, uh, we've, uh, we're, we're kind of running on time. But I want to ask, what has... Say that again? Let's talk about something musical so I can give some... Uh... Yeah, yeah. What, has, what, has what role has community played in your sync life, comp composition life? Oh, community. Oh, well, I mean... I have communities like water, man. We just need it. So essentially, you can't you can't do anything without other people. Um, I think the trailer music community is so beautiful on Facebook, and so many amazing minds and interesting lives too. And you look at someone like Lionel Schmidt, who's just been through so much, and then he went from being a fan of trailer music to being, in my opinion, a fantastic composer, really phenomenal. Um, there's also a number of, I mean, there's a number of different people that have all these different interesting stories. Alex McCullough as well. Really, really cool um, stories from these people. And the community itself is, I always find it to be quite supportive. Um, when you have meetups in person in, in LA and you see people who you know from online, they already kind of know you and you already know them. Um, that means that there's a significant community, I think, in, and it's, it's quite a special thing. I don't see this in other genres. I don't see an EDM community. And I don't see a, I don't see a rock community so much. So in the, in the realm of trailer music, because it's such a small industry, um, people are able to um, not only collaborate, just like work, but also know each other as if they were this found family. That makes for a very beautiful experience, I think. Yeah. And... What uh, the the next question I want to ask you is: If you had to describe your production style in three words, what would they be? Quick, crazy, focus. Nice. That's cool, man. What? piece of advice would you leave to somebody entering this the the sync space nowadays wanting to to start getting their feet wet wanting to to get that income from sync wanting to create success for themselves what piece of advice would you leave them with there needs to be an interesting elements in the music no matter what it is if you have a track that's nothing but two chords then the interestingness has to be in the production of those chords and how powerful the brass sounds if you have a track that um is very melodic then the melody has to be interesting there has to be some reason that people are getting hooked on the track 
you like okay take this for instance somebody's on facebook posting about the food they ate last fucking saturday i don't care about that why do they care about that because they're trapped in this idea that because it's them it's interesting that's a poison in in music you cannot think that you're by default interesting and thus the music you make is interesting it has to actually have to think about it and say okay what's interesting the listener what is interesting me in the track and i think that after you get over the high of composing your own music for a bit then you start to get a quote-unquote bored that's the best way i can put it of the idea of composing your own music and now you're like okay so what's the interesting thing in this track how do i get that interestingness again that's why practice is so fucking important because you need to get over certain stages in your own mind when you're um when you're going about composing over and over and over and over and over again because when you start again you're in you're on this high you're like oh man this is my stuff this is amazing because i did it okay that's the interesting stuff there but the music itself isn't because you've already been satisfied by that source of, in, of inspiration from that source of interestingness quote unquote so yeah you just have to practice and practice until essentially you start wanting more of that interesting this feeling and you start to incorporate it in your music and i think that's a something that's not talked about enough you know it's like the music has to be interesting come on people man i always listen to a lot of uh beginner stuff and i'm so excited that they're so excited and i'm, I'm inspired that they're inspired but the number one thing that i hear even if they're a fantastic producer is that the music's not interesting right it's it might repeat it might be very repetitive uh you might hear two melodies clashing at the same time there's nothing that's really hooking the listener in and meanwhile you have a kid on who knows some ipad who can make like a full track piece that's really phenomenal and interesting because that's the, it's about that perspective more than anything else and if you make interesting music by default and definition it's interesting so people will not forget it people will actually be able to use that track for other purposes if, if say it doesn't get into the thing that you get into yeah interesting is a top priority interestingness should be above um many factors even even they're all important but i think that 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 factor of interestingness and, and catching people with your music um should be something important like with sidewinder when i made that track for Ghost Rider's Black Space album, I was literally thinking like an eight-year-old kid. I was like, okay, what would I want to hear as an eight-year-old? What 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 is stereotypical trailer music? Like, what would an eight-year-old sing to themselves hearing trailer music? And I just did that shit, man. And that was it. Because that's that's such a simple, like linear path to uh objectivity or at least as close as we can get to it oh, there you go yes yes i agree finding finding that unique uniqueness inside you as an individual is one of the most if not the most important thing that will get you work in the long run in my opinion being able to explore uh your own limitations and your own and your own vulnerability and music and and know first of all yeah know thy strength know where you're good and also explore in that within that yes and it's like that, that uniqueness is so important but you know they're separate because the uniqueness is created by being interested and creating something interesting one of the most memorable tracks i've ever made i've never even launched i made it in college in logic where I made this stereotypical like Africana kind of uh, intro, and then I followed it up with some like elephant sound, like like it was just so stupid, right? But it was interesting. That's really the factor. So it didn't come from some deep place within myself. Um, I think actually people might get too reflective in that logic, and they might it might backfire. So they're like, oh, who am I? And then it becomes existential because you you have self and other, and you really want to be more an other. Because when you abuse self and you extrapolate self to a degree that's way unbalanced, then you end up becoming, um, well, essentially just too self-focused and then you don't actually focus on the music. Again, it's just about that sim 
to the simple concept of it sounding interesting to you. Even like you have to think if this music wasn't written by you and you were listening to it, would it be interesting? That's, that's the question, I think. And then from there, you know, you can develop what people might call you. We really don't know who we are, actually, when it comes to writing music. Like if I put a bunch of hits on a track and it's this interesting little triplet thing I decided to do, is that, is that me? Like if I met my creator at the end of my life, would he say, oh, yes, you are a triplet hit. Like <laughs> a, a mixture of things. And um, I think Hans Zimmer put this really well one time. He said in an old interview that um, little transitions are him, like little things, little things he doesn't think about. Right. That's what's him. Um, and I think that's true too. I think when we go, like my best ideas don't come from, oh man, this is amazing. I'm going to make this happen. Actually, no, quite, quite the opposite. My best, in my opinion, my best ideas come from, oh, that's kind of interesting. What's that? Let's, let's fuck around with that. Curiosity is really who we all are as people. And um, this, this kind of thing where like you might like a different food than me, right? That's not deep. That's just you liking a different food. But that tells me who you are. It tells me a lot about who you like. You might like spicy foods, okay? Right? So maybe like a little pain or whatever, right? That's that's a different thing. So that that allows me to then encapsulate something about you. Um, and it's the things that we don't think about, things we gravitate towards. That's what makes us, I feel, unique. Um, just like I teach this a lot of the times, it's like creativity is not something that you boost. Creativity is something that's always inside you. You just have to unblock it. You have to get rid of the stress that's blocking it. You already have maximum potential. Um, so there's, there's a lot of things that you have to... The ego, which is a good thing, if we're talking about identity, the, the ego becomes healthy when it's not observing itself right? that's i guess that's my uh <laughs> this is getting so deep but yeah that's that would be my answer for for that question sick muddy what's next for phil lober what is what is a big thing you want to achieve what's holding you afloat what's uh what's going on in phil's world right now vision wise i want to learn the process of hollywood you know, I've been working freelance. I've been traveling around the world a lot. And now I want to at least spend six months to a year in Hollywood itself, working with other composers, um, just learning about that collaborative process, also learning about production skills, things that um, might be more uniform in a collaborative environment um, than just the stuff that I choose to do on my system. Um, there's a whole world I want to explore with with the either in-house or just the industry itself. Um, but definitely want to kind of move myself up into the belly of LA and explore that realm a little bit more. The belly of the beast. Let's Maybe. go. Let's go. Where can people find you? How can people contact you? Um, people can contact me through email, but it keeps on deleting my putting in the trash it's like this is where these people belong in the trash so actually yeah i think that it's best to message me on um on facebook to be quite honest like i always answer facebook and i always answer uh text message too so yeah but i don't know if i should give up my number but uh, yeah so uh, youtube is a great place to contact me facebook even email too um but um if you want to actually find the music itself, then of course it's on it's on Spotify and then multiple platforms. So. I will link to that. Phil Lober, thanks for coming on and dropping so many gems. Thanks for having me. I hope I, I hope I dropped enough. Yo, how good was that? If you like this, if you dig this, make sure to leave us a five star rating with a review. Hit me up on socials with that review and I will make sure to send you some dope samples I've made for myself that have helped me on my journey. And 
Aside from that, when you leave a review, this really helps it to get to more ears and helps me to reach out to more amazing, high-caliber professionals that can tell you more about the sync world. So, see you on the next episode of Sync Gems. Peace!